Sunderland's Ali Dixon might have fancied herself as a hurdler or long jumper, but was always destined for the longer stuff. Following her father, a marathon runner, around the country as a youngster gave her a grounding in the sport's lengthiest discipline, and she soon abandoned any barrier or field fancies, committing to pounding pavements. Twice a Bucks 10,000 metre champion, Dixon won her first England call-up over that same distance in 2008 and earned her GB vest just a year later over the half. She's been a fully-fledged international ever since, competing at Commonwealth's World and European Championships and Olympics and has been British marathon champion two years on the bounce now. One of a select few to have dipped below 32.30 for 10k, 71 for the half and 2 hours 30 for the marathon, Ali manages to balance being a chatty, beaming presence off the course and a gritty competitor on it. Although combined the two this summer at the World Championships, where she thrilled the nation by hitting the front just over a quarter of the way through and remaining there through the 15, 20 and 25 kilometre markers. Fans took to Twitter to describe her run as a bloody great effort, the phenomenally brave little pocket rocket showing just how to have fun on a run and being beyond awesome to boot. I concur entirely and was thrilled to chat to her a few weeks ago. In preparation for this, I always read through athletes' Wikipedia pages because they always seem to throw up some bizarre little tidbits of information that I wasn't aware of. And I had no idea that apparently you joined your first athletics club because of a trip to Flamingoland. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Um, when I was at school, my best friend was a member of the club and I've always been involved in running because my dad was a marathon runner. So I've always done like fun runs and that from a very early age. But then they were going to Flamingoland theme park and because of insurance and everything, you had to be a member of the club to go. So yeah, I joined up and went to Flamingoland. Then probably about six months later, my friend packed in running and I kept going. When you were like, what, I must have been 11 or 12 at the time, you know, a theme park is really exciting and it's a big <laughs> day out and you don't really think that about the journey it's going to lead you on for the next 20 odd years. But I always think it's very apt that it was a theme park that got us to join the local club and then I've pretty much had a roller coaster of a journey after that. So, yeah, it, it goes good, gives a good story. <laughs> That's beautifully poetic. And like you said, you joined us and it's taken you on this decades of athletics, which culminated for me in kind of your, so far, your finest hour, which was that amazing world champs race. But you didn't do your first half marathon until 2008. What was it that made you think, okay, I'm going to move up into the really longer distances? Yeah, I actually did a half marathon a lot earlier than that because I did the Great North Run when I was 17 and 18 but it was kind of just you know running around the one when I was 18 was actually a few days after my 18th birthday party and I was still pretty much hungover for that (laughs) but yeah kind of competitively it wasn't until 2008 so back then in in the lead up to the Commonwealth Games 2006 I did think to myself kind of if I move up to the marathon now I might be able to make the team and I was training with Lindsay Dunn and his group at the time and I said to him these are my plans and it was at my friend's I think it was our 40th birthday party and Lindsay actually said to us well if you delay your marathon kind of move up I'll coach you and then we'll steadily get faster over the short distances then move up when we feel ready so Yeah, I agreed with that. And then kind of, 
I think I was with Lindsay about four or five years and it culminated in getting my first GB vest for the world half in 2009. And then I decided, right, this is kind of as fast as I want to go over the shorter distances. It's now time to move up because I was then 31. So, yeah, I decided to move up to the marathon. Um, Myself and Lindsay had a few disagreements about the training that was needed, so we parted company. And my first marathon was an absolute disaster. I went into it (laughs) far too cocky. I was aiming for Commonwealth Games and European qualifying time that year. It was 2010. And, you know, six-minute miling was what I needed. But to me, six-minute miling was easy you know I'm going to do 550s and I got to 16 miles and I just wanted to sit down and cry (laughs) and yeah it was the longest hardest 10 mile of my life but I finished because I knew I had to finish you know stopping and going back to the hotel was the easy option I hadn't done all that training to take the easy option and the first thing I did when I crossed the line most people is you know they all say never again I was like literally I need to do that again. I need to get a positive experience from the marathon. So, yeah, I went to New York in the November and just absolutely fell in love with the distance. I had a great time over there. Really positive experience. Ran a PB, did a negative split by one second. (laughs) And, yeah, that was it. I was in love with the distance. And, you know, looking back, it's gone as good probably is even better than what I expected but I always knew kind of even from joining the local athletics club at age 11 and back then I wanted to be a hurdler or a long jumper but I always knew deep in my heart it was going to be the marathon where I would shine like I say my dad was a 221 marathon runner so it was kind of in the blood and yeah I just even as a youngster the longer the event went on the better I got so, yeah, everybody pretty much had his earmarked as a marathon runner. I tried to fight it for a lot of years and I didn't want to do it. But, yeah, it it got us eventually and I was bitten by the bug. So if the marathon chose you and all these people said, you know, watch out for Ali Dixon, she's really got what it takes to make it to a top level. That's one thing. But I think with the longer distances, it is so intensely about self-belief. When was it that you knew that you were destined for a GB vest? Kind of over the shorter distances, I was always kind of just on the edge of making it. So like my 10K, I was down to a low 33 by that point. And back then we were still sending teams to things like the Ekiden Relays. And I kept on trying to target selection for those events. And I was always just missing out on them. And then the half marathon I kind of I targeted that and tried to make the worlds and again very nearly missed out on it and then once I eventually made that world championships for the half marathon you know it was a case of a bit of relief that you've made it but I also thought well this is probably going to be my only time that I've made it I'll make it unless I move up because I knew there was a lot of people that were faster than us over the shorter distances and then yeah, after my first marathon, I thought maybe this isn't for me. And then, like I say, New York, I just fell in love with it. And then my third marathon, I ran 234, made the World Championships in Diego. And that was when I started to think, you know, actually, I could be quite good at this if I just, you know, do the correct training and, and you know, really focus and 
dedicate my life to it and that's when I then went part-time at work and started to kind of focus a bit more on the running because I was also 32 at that point and we had the home Olympics just around the corner so it was a big carrot and you're kind of thinking well I haven't got many more chances I've really got to go for this and yeah it didn't work out in 2012 and then 2014 I got injured at the Commonwealth Games and just all of those little disappointments and setbacks just give us more kind of fire in my belly to go out and put more training in put more focus onto it and then it all paid off in 2015 when I ran Berlin and then made Rio and then yeah kind of went faster still in London Marathon this year and then world championships in August was just absolutely unbelievable so yeah it's been a long journey but worth it. I wanted to ask you today what the single favourite race of your career is and I think I know what the answer to this (laughs) is going to be but just in case it surprises me what's been your favourite outing? Yeah I've actually got two because obviously the world championships it was just absolutely amazing incredible experience leading a world championship in a home championship and just the support that I was getting on the side of the road and then when I got back to my phone and all the social media and everything that was incredible and it would take a lot to top that but kind of sentimental wise my favorite performance was actually winning the Bladen race two years ago so up here the Bladen race is quite a big race and it's a race that I first did when I was 16 and it took us 21 years to eventually win it and when you look at the trophy there's some good names on there like Jill Hunter's won it a few times and a couple of Kenyans and Russians so that one meant a lot to us kind of sentimentally but yeah experience wise and fun wise I'd it's got to take a lot to beat the world championships this year. There's a nice contrast between the two of those. I think yeah. I'm a ditherer, so I'll definitely let you get away with having two favourite races. <laughs> Sticking with the world champs one, though, you yeah. write this wonderful blog, and I've read the entry about that particular race about three times. But for those who haven't done, can you just explain how it felt, firstly, to realise that you'd actually just broken clean away from the field? And then secondly what was going through your mind for those long, long miles when by some way you were leading the world championships? Yeah, at first, like, we set off and the Portuguese girl went flying off into the lead and I actually laughed at her. I was like, what are you doing, man? You know, you don't want to be (laughs) that far ahead. We're just going to swallow you up. And then when we did catch her just before 10K, I thought to myself, it'd be pretty cool if I can get to the 10K time at Matt you know, just a stride ahead of everyone. So I've always got that official timing split that I led the world championships. And then as it turned out, when I looked at the splits, I didn't get the 10k one, but I did get (laughs) 15, 20, 25. So yeah, I got a few of those official splits. But kind of once I got in the lead, I honestly thought they were like just sitting probably five meters behind and I didn't want to look behind to see where they were. So I just kept on running at the pace I wanted to and just waited and waited for them to come past us. And then it wasn't until we got to the far end of the course and we did that horrible U-bend on ourselves. And I looked around and I was like, oh, actually quite far behind. What's happening? (laughs) But again, I was just thinking, you know, oh, by the next feed station, they'll catch us. And 
it was just I was counting down until the cut would catch us and they just never did until what was it 19 miles and there was was points yeah there was points where I was thinking have I taken a wrong turn is you know (laughs) has the race been stopped for some reason but nobody's told us and yeah it was kind of I never once thought I'm going to run away and win this or I'm going to get a medal or even finish in the top 10 I was just waiting for them to catch us swallow us up and then I was thinking right when they do that just stick in for as long as you can tag on the back get dragged along and just you know hopefully still get a PB and a decent position finish wise and then my biggest mistake of the whole race was when they did catch us instead of doing that that I'd kind of planned for the last 15 mile stupid me went to the front of the pack and started pushing on again kind of you know I wasn't giving up the fight that easy and yeah mile 20 ended up being a 5.15 and mile 21 was a 5.23 which I'm not capable of that kind of in a 10k (laughs) never mind at 20 miles in a marathon so yeah looking back that would be the only thing that I would change because what it meant was my mile 25 then became a seven minute mile but mile 26 I kind of got back down to that six minute mile but yeah, it was absolutely fantastic being out there and the crowd were getting more and more excited the longer I was out there. I think at first they just thought, oh, look at her, she's giving it a go. And then I was out there still the second lap and they're like, actually, she's got a decent lead. And then the third lap, like, when will the catcher? Will the catcher? So, yeah, I give the crowd some entertainment. I've had lots of people saying, you made what could have been a really boring race, more fun to watch. You kept us on the edge of our seats. You know, I've had one or two negative people as well saying it was all showmanship and, you know, I ran it silly and I shouldn't have done that. But, you know, I went out there to run my race plan. If I turned around after having sat back with the group and went, oh, I could have ran faster or I could have finished higher, people would have then said, well, why didn't you push on? You were out there, you know, control the pace. So... Either way, you can't win. I ran it the way I ran. I'm happy with the way I ran. And I loved every second of it. I think those naysayers can just go somewhere that I certainly shan't say for (laughs) for the fact that we just can't afford a bleep machine on this podcast. So I cannot actually edit anything out. I think the way you ran it, it was brave. It was exactly what the crowds wanted. I have absolutely no doubt you'll have inspired other people. You know, it wasn't a marathon for the ages, but for me, the takeaway from that will 100% be your run and your efforts. And, oh, I loved it. I was actually logging for the home broadcaster at the World Champs. I was working on it. I was glued to my screen about every mile. I was just for the fun of it, putting, oh, Ali Dixon, GBR (laughs) leading the race. I thoroughly enjoyed it. What were the people shouting at you from the sidelines? At first, it was a lot of just the general, because obviously we've got our named babes, and it was like, you know, mainly Go Dixon. There was one or two that actually recognised us, and it was like, Go Ali. And then, yeah, kind of as you went on, there was more Go Ali's. So I don't know if they'd been picking up on social media what my first name was or what, but then they were like, come on, girl, you can do it. Come on, just keep it up. (laughs) And yeah, they were getting more and more enthusiastic and... I was just kind of egging them on a bit more, you know, waving for them to get louder and that. And yeah, there was just all sorts of different things being shouted. And there's some great pictures on social media of people hanging over the railings, like literally screaming in my face. And yeah, the one thing that I rec- like noticed on every lap 
was Sophie Rayworth and Susie Chan were down towards the bottom end of the course and they were just hanging over screaming and then I spoke to them since then and they said they only intended to stay for the first lap but they just got so enthralled in it they were like we can't leave until we find out what happens the crowd enjoyed it as much as I did oh definitely and I think that's where the lap nature of the course for the world champs really came into its own I like that you were eating up people's weekend morning that's great yeah So all the cheering and everything made it one of the most fun races of your life. But it does sound like, as you said, that 25th mile was a pretty dark place. The marathon is infamous for people hitting a wall and having some really difficult times en route to the end. What is it that you tell yourself or what is it that you do to get yourself through the hardest miles? For me, it was just a case of, you know, repeating to myself, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, because there was a point where I was kind of quite worried that my legs weren't going to make it to the finish line and my head had went down it was a quiet section of the course but then we came back into the crowds and everybody was screaming again and that picked us up and I've never hit the wall whether in a race or training and you hear all these horror stories and you see all the kind of pictures at like the London Marathon And I did honestly think, this is it, I finally hit the wall. It's going to be a death march for these last two miles. But I obviously didn't because I picked up again. And one of the big things that got us to pick up was I ran past Gary Loff and he just shouted, you know, just finish, (laughs) just dig in and finish. (laughs) And that kind of like snapped us out of feeling sorry for myself. And I was like, right, just get up there. And yeah, like I say, then the last mile with the crowds and everything, I was like, you know, these guys have stood out here since 10 o'clock this morning, cheering on the men and then cheering on us. I can't just wallow in self-pity and, you know, kind of trudge along the finish. So yeah, coming onto the bridge, I was just high-fiving people. My friend gave us the flag, which I got wrapped around as and over my head and everything. And then I eventually crossed the line and... I was standing talking to somebody and the next thing I remember I'm getting cold water poured over us off Amy Crag and she's saying are you okay and I'm like don't pour that on us it's cold <laughs> so yeah I spent a few minutes in the medical tent but all I needed was a can of coke and a Mars bar and then I was ready to go again. Ready to go again or just ready to be able to walk? <laughs> um, no I think the adrenaline was still kind of pumping around us and yeah I felt kind of Right, I'm ready to go again, but then walking back across the bridge to the hotel, my legs were like, no, you're not ready. (laughs) I am not surprised. That was a marathon in itself, yeah. I felt quite exhausted just watching the last few miles because of Amy Cragg, who you just mentioned. That was a thoroughly emotional medal for her, and oh, it was wonderful to see. I know that Paula Radcliffe has helped you out with training in the past, and I was wondering when you two met and what it's like being paced on a long run by one of the sport's all-time greats. We first met in, I think it was the beginning of 2012. We were both in Kenya and she was obviously still training for the 2012 Olympics back then. And when we first met, I was still kind of that, oh my God, it's Paula, I can't really speak to her (laughs) sort of thing. But then, unfortunately, her camp got cut short because she got injured And then we met again a few years later, again at the Kenya camp. And by then she'd retired. Well, she's never officially retired, but she'd eased back on the train and everything. And she was there in a coaching capacity, even though she keeps on saying, I'm not a coach, I'm not a coach. 
but yeah we kind of we got talking to each other and you know I was asking her a lot of things as you do when you've got the world record holder sitting next to you I was just literally battering her head with questions and then the friendship kind of grew from there and that was 2014 and then the back end of 2014 was a bit of a disaster for me from Commonwealth Games onwards I got the injury at the Commonwealths and then kind of I just wasn't enjoying athletics after that and then I somehow got selected for Great Edinburgh Cross Country and I should never have accepted it because I'd been poorly over Christmas and I hate cross country but I also knew it was my one and only chance of getting a cross country vest so I said yes and I came embarrassingly dead last by absolute miles and at that point it was like right that's it I'm really not enjoying it I'm packing in I've had enough I've just made a fool of myself and I spoke to Paula she just sent us a message saying you know that wasn't you out there you're a roadrunner don't let it like be disappointed by it and I sent her this long message saying no that's it I've had enough you know I've just made a fool of myself it's time to move on and she was like, no, just come out to Kenya, see what shape you can get in, do some road races, you'll soon get the love back. So I went out there and she was training for London Marathon that year. And we did a lot of training together. And some of the Sunday runs, like the long runs, she she's still really competitive and she would never give you an inch. And there was one particular run where she turned and said, Ali, you're going to kill us here. And I thought she meant like I was pushing her into the traffic or something because the Kenyan roads are pretty bad. <laughs> and I was like, well, just, you know, push us out of the way if there's traffic coming. She was like, no, the pace. And I said, well, ease off. I'm not asking you to come with us. And you'd honestly think like, you know, I'd called her the worst thing ever because <laughs> she was so offended by it. <laughs> and then, yes, yeah, all that trip, she just kept on saying, you're in good shape, you're in good shape. You know, you need to find a road race when you get back, you're in really good shape. And I wasn't really believing her, but when somebody of her caliber says that, you kind of, you've got to listen. So I came back and I ran Trafford 10K and I totally smashed my PB. I ran 32, I think it was 26 or 28. Awesome. And yeah, kind of, you know, I spoke to her straight after that. I was like, yeah, maybe you were right. But I was also at that point where I was self-coached and I was like, well, where do I go from now? What do I do with my training? And she actually persuaded us to get a late entry for the London Marathon that year. And again, I wasn't too sure, but I got the number just so we had it as a kind of option. And I said, right, I'll do it if I can break 71 at Reading Half. And I didn't break the 71, so I pulled out of London. And looking back, it was probably one of the best things I did because then I could have a longer build-up, going to Berlin, everything focused on that. And, you know, I went over to Font in July and August. Again, she was there training with us. She'd be timing my track sessions. And then the next thing I know, she's in front of us, blocking the wind on my reps. And she'd be on the bike during my tempos and my long runs, passing us my water bottles and everything. And again, we got into really good shape. And she was just constantly saying, you know, believe in yourself you can do this you're capable of this but at the same time also saying don't put limits on what you can achieve so I just kept on saying 
do you think I'm in 228 shape? Do you think I should go through halfway in this? And she was like, don't put limits. Because what happens if you go through in 73, you're feeling absolutely fantastic. Are you going to go, whoa, this is too fast. Let's back off. She's like, just run. You know if you can keep it up for 26 miles. Run to fail. Run at a pace that you think is sustainable. And I did that. Unfortunately, beetroot juice played with my guts in the last 5K, which slowed us down. But I ran a 90-second PB, got the Olympic qualifying time, which I needed. And then, yeah, I had a six-month kind of getting back into shape for London Marathon. And then I knew I just needed top two at London to get the, to the Olympics. And, yeah, kind of, again, she was by my side training in Kenya and then in Font. And then in that last 400 metres at London that year, it was just a case of head down, get down the mile, and that's it. And crossing that line, it was just absolutely, you know, amazing. And I know kind of on her commentary, you could tell that she was getting really excited. And yeah, kind of the hug that I got after, after from her was, it was just amazing. And she said, like, it's been so good to be part of the journey and help transform us from somebody that was about to walk away from the sport to somebody that's really realised the dream of going to the Olympics and, yeah, just continuing to get faster and faster. And even now, you know, we're in contact pretty much on a daily basis and she's keeping us on the straight and narrow from, you know, not doing too much and not making silly mistakes. And, yeah, it is just... I'd never, ever thought I'd be in a position where I'm kind of, you know, I'm friends with Paula Radcliffe and I'm getting her help and her advice. And yeah, it's just, it's <laughs> when I talk about it, it's quite surreal because obviously she was a big inspiration and a big hero. I don't tell her that though, <laughs> in my athletics coming through the ranks. And now it's kind of, yeah, I ran a half marathon around Disneyland with that last Sunday and it's just absolutely bizarre, really. I was reeling for the first half of that answer about the fact that you hate cross-country, which is someone with your background, <laughs> that staggered me. But also that's wonderful to hear how supportive Paula's been. It sounds as though she's got so many roles in your life. She's a friend, she's a training partner, she's sort of an advisor and, again, as you said, an inspiration. But we'll, we'll keep that on the down low. You mentioned going to Kenya, going to Font, and your running has clearly taken you all over the world. But I was wondering, is your favourite running route one close to home, perhaps? Yeah, I have a few favourites. Again, I'm very indecisive. I can't just pick one. But I'm really lucky where I live. Um, In Sunderland, literally from my house, I run three miles and I'm into the countryside, three miles opposite direction, and I'm on the seafront. And one of my favourite routes is to run down to the seafront, onto the cliff tops, and then all the way along to South Shields to where the Great North Run finishes and then back along. And if you get a sunny day, whether it's summer or winter, running along those cliff tops, just looking out of the sea, blue skies, lovely blue sea, you could literally be anywhere in the world and you just really get lost in your run and in your thoughts. But I do also have another favourite run up in front around the plateau. So it's like the highest point in front remote. It's about 2,200 metres. And again, if you're up there on a lovely sunny day, you can see for miles and miles. If you go in the spring, you've still got the snow-capped mountains in the distance. And yeah, it's just 
the miles pass so quickly when you've got beautiful scenery and good company. But even just being up there by yourself, you can just get lost in the run until a few cows come along and chase you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they both sound absolutely beautiful. You're being kept company at the moment on the global stage by some really fantastic other distance runners, uh, British-wise. Callum Hawkins is looking better and better every time I see him run. How long do you think it will be before he's meddling at the very biggest marathons? Yeah, he came really close this year in London. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see his race because I was kind of preparing for my race and I didn't want to watch too much of the men's and get too excited by it. (laughs) But... I've kind of watched part of it back since then and the way he ran, it's really sensible. He comes through strong in that second half, but he also leads absolutely everything out on the course. You know, he does really have the proverbial balls of steel. And (laughs) yeah, just, I think had he maybe pushed on probably 30 seconds earlier, he might have got that bronze medal, but... He's still young. He's still learning the event. It's only, what, his third or fourth marathon. So he's got plenty of time. And you've got to look at him as a real medal prospect in future championships. So, yeah, he's a really exciting one to watch. He definitely is, as is Charlotte Purgy, who seems to be really finding her form in the distance. And then a new arrival on the road scene will, of course, next season be Mo Farah. How do you think he's going to get on? Yeah, um, I'm not too sure about more. Hopefully he's not listening to this and <laughs> kind of, you know, got to give his grief when I see him. But I think his running style is a bit too bouncy for the marathon. So he uses a lot of energy. And I think just all the years of 120, 130 mile weeks that he's done in training for his track work, you know, kind of, he said himself this year, he's finding it harder to do the 10k at pace and for the marathon especially when you're looking at the type of times that he should be looking at you still need to have that ability to run a fast 10k so he might have left it a little bit too late in my opinion and had the best run and ran out of his legs but you know he should still be able to put in a and this sounds stupid saying just but a 2-4 or a 2-5 so yeah It'll be interesting to see how he does. Fascinating about his running style. And I like to think Mo Farah listens to the Backstraight Boys. Um, Mo, (laughs) if you're listening, we'd love to get you on. Uh, Well, I personally, I'm a huge Mo Farah fan and I hope he does it, but I completely agree that there is an enormous difference between pulling out a sub 50, 400 metres on the track and then transitioning that sort of speed. And obviously he's the fastest British 1500 metre runner of all time. Taking that onto the road is a very big ask, but it's one that Kenanisa Bekele is also struggling with obviously he's had a fair few non-finishes and Berlin didn't exactly go to plan he's another person with a serious engine do you think he's got the endurance to actually this this is very harsh of me because he is the second fastest marathon runner of all time so it's not exactly been a failure but do you think he's going to go on to fulfill his road running potential Um, again I think because they've left it so long in their careers to move up it's kind of a lot of their best running has been left on the track. And, you know, what Kenanisa has achieved on the track, you can't knock it. He literally is <laughs> the greatest distance runner ever on the track. But going into the marathon now and 
again, I think maybe we've seen his best marathon already. And like you say, he's had a lot of DNFs lately or things just haven't gone well. And yeah, it's just whether, you know, there's a long history of guys that have run really fast on 10K on half marathon and then can't convert to the marathon. And although he's run really fast already, I can't really see him running much faster. Whereas some of the pure marathon guys like Kipchoge, you know, he showed us back in May what he's capable of under more or less lab conditions. And I think he could still do it out on the road on a Berlin or somewhere like that in good conditions with the correct pacemakers. But obviously it's going to be hard to get pacemakers to run, you know, to one pace for as long as he's going to need them. So, yeah, I'd still love to see again all three of them fit, Kipsang, Bekele and Kipchoge and just really go head-to-head on perfect conditions and see what can happen. I saw a fantastic tweet ahead of Berlin saying, does everyone else agree that this is the first world record to have been broken before the gun actually goes off? And I think we all did assume that we would see the record go. Were you also expecting that mark to fall? Yeah, definitely. Um... I think the one thing that kind of did put pay to it was the weather on the day. Mm. But yeah, everybody just thought, get those three big guns together, somewhere like Berlin, which always produces really fast runs. And, you know, we are looking close to the two hours again. And it was the one thing that I was kind of upset about when I saw Kipchoge was doing the two-hour attempt in May. I was like, oh, you know, it's going to put pay to us seeing the big three together in somewhere like Berlin, but eventually they did get them together. And yeah, it, it turned out to be a bit of a damp squib, but yeah, it was it was good to see kind of the three of them, how they then reacted. And that new guy, is it Adola, who was second? Yes. You know, another major talent in there. So yeah, it was a little bit of a disappointment that they didn't run the world record but we still got a fantastic race out of it at the end we definitely didn't it was very brave they went out at that world record pace and sustained it for a while so the intent was there and i read recently that in the last sort of couple of days uh coach no his agent has sat him down and said you are focusing too much on things off the road your business interests everything else that's going on in your life you need to be more professional you need to come into these races 100% fit rather than 80 90 which is what he's done recently so hopefully he can really refocus and we'll see it again yeah because he's now counteracted that and said you know I was focused and I Mm. will run the world record but yeah it is hard for the marathon because like Joss Hermans was saying everything has to be focused on that one race on that one day and you are putting all your eggs into that one basket and if there's one little thing not right whether it's mentally physically or environmentally you know it is a lot that's kind of kind of wasted in a way so there's no oh let's go and try it again next week like you can do on a 10k or a 5k so to get that 100% focus and dedication out of the athlete is, you know, that's the key to getting the good marathon. We all witnessed one of the most, in my opinion, extraordinary athletic feats in history earlier this year, which you've already touched upon in the breaking two attempt. And that was somewhere where all the conditions were perfect and the athletes were primed as well as science possibly can do. 
is going sub two feasible? And do you think Kipchoge will be the one to do it? Yeah, I think, you know, we came very, very close. And when you look, if you watch the footage of it and then the documentary that they released the other week, Kipchoge... Yeah, great it's a, documentary. You know, he's an absolute beast. <laughs> and he looks like he's working hard, but he doesn't look distressed. And, you know, you look at that and you think if somebody had told him a little bit soon, I know they had all like the race prediction on the car and that, but I'm not sure how much kind of notice he was taking of that. And now you look, we're a second a mile away from sub two. You know, is there something that they could tweak, you know, if there'd been a little bit less wind or whatever. But yeah, I, I always said it wouldn't happen in my lifetime. But watching that, I now think, you know, another year or two and it possibly could. It wouldn't surprise me if someone dipped below two hours before someone broke Paula's record, which I was told yeah. once by a statistician is the biggest outlier in world athletics because no one yeah. can get close to it. I think Mary Katani might be one of the women who could give it a go, perhaps if she actually ran Berlin or a really fast course. But where do you stand on that? Yep, I've said the same. Mary Katani, if she pierces it right, because Katani's biggest problem is she goes off like a bat out of hell <laughs> and then dies. But she is getting better at it. You know, she still went off very, very fast at London and kind of died to a 2.17. But yeah, if she can control that pace and... Again, if she can get a pacemaker to take her to 15 miles, it's going to help a lot more than... I don't think the pacemaker even got her to 12 miles at London. But, yeah, I've said to Paula a few times, I could see Mary Katani getting close, and she just gives us very bad looks. (laughs) (laughs) I've absolutely no doubt she does. That's a fantastic thing to say to Paula Radcliffe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I quite often, like, wind her up because... Again, when you look at the technology that's now coming into it, Nike have made those Vaporfly shoes. Adidas have just kind of fought back with their new marathon shoe. I've not seen it yet, but apparently it's going to rival the Vaporfly. And with all those things around, you know, there's got to be gains to be made just with a better shoe. And when you also look... The half marathon world records came down so much this year. You know, put one of those girls into a marathon, could they get close? And put all, you know, two or three of them together in the same marathon, pushing each other on. And it's the same effect that you're going to get from Kip Sangbakili and Kip Chogi. And yeah, I think whilst I don't see the record going for another few years yet, I do think we could see a 2.16 quite soon. Technology is helping athletes to run faster and it's also prolonging careers. You wrote in that blog post about London that you might not be around for the next world championships. Everyone listening to this and myself certainly would love you to be. If things continue to go well and, you know, there's a, there is a degree of luck in an athletics career and all sorts of things need to go your way. But do you think you might commit for another four year cycle? I've always said I'm going to take it a year at a time and a championships at a time. So my biggest factors are I've got to still be enjoying it. I don't want to be waking up every morning and thinking, oh, I've got to go for a run, I've got to do training, you know, I've got to go for another physio session. I want to be waking up 
and looking forward to going for my training and my runs and my gym and everything. And the second big thing is my body's got to stay in one piece. So I've been really lucky that I've had no major injuries since the Commonwealth Games in 2014, touch wood, that stays like that. And as long as my body's in one piece and I'm enjoying it, I should continue to improve. And if I do that and it takes us to Tokyo, it would be absolutely fantastic. But I'm not prepared to commit and say, yes, I'm definitely keep on going for Tokyo because I could wake up tomorrow and go, that's it, I've had enough. You know, my time's up. I've done everything I wanted to do. I've had a good career. I've run some decent times. Let's go and get a normal life. But yeah, as long as I'm enjoying it and I'm still improving, I'll go on for as long as I can. I don't know if the microphone picked it up, but as soon as you mentioned the injuries, I gave my head a good hard knock for you. And I'll be keeping <laughs> everything crossed because I love, love watching you run. My final question, Ali, is everyone this week has been receiving their ballot spaces for next year's London Marathon, which is terrifically yeah. exciting. I've no doubt that some athletics fans listening to this will be amongst those. Imagine I'd just received a space for London next year and I'm someone who runs a wee bit, but I've not done any serious training. What would be your golden rule for me so that I can really enjoy my first marathon experience? Respect the distance would be my big one. Uh, You know, it's a long way and you've got to respect it, but also not be afraid of it. Because if you're sitting here now, you know, trembling at the knees because you've got a urine (laughs) magazine, it's it's going to be even bigger task for you. You've got to sit here and go, right, it's 26 mile, 30 odd thousand or however many people run London every year, all shapes, all sizes, some in fancy dress. If they can do it, you know, anyone can. And then plan your training out so that you're not going from zero to hero within a few weeks and then getting injured and having to take step backs it's all about consistent miles and using the time from now to January to build up a good base so that your legs are strong enough to then start building up kind of your long runs and your tempo runs and everything and even for the dual joggers out there I think it's important that they need to do their training runs to at least the length of time that they expect to take the race. So if they're looking for a five-hour run, they should really go out and do a five-hour training run. It doesn't all have to be running. You can do a bit of walking or whatever. But if you only train for three hours, your body's going to get to that three-hour point and go, right, this is all what I'm used to. So what's this next two hours going to hold for us? And it's the same with the elite guys. You see a lot of kind of the elite club runners. So when you're looking at the girls, kind of the 235 to 240s, and they'll only go up to 20 miles. And then the first thing they'll say after is, oh, that last six miles was hell. It's like, yeah, because you haven't trained for those last six miles. And they're the really important, you know, probably the most important six miles of the race. So if you can train up to 24, 25, at least your body knows what it's like to go that far you know what it's like to be on your feet for that long and kind of like the different fuel that you're going to need to be taken on. And it does make a huge difference. It's what I credit my big improvements to, doing my longer runs longer and getting used to being out there for, you know, two hours 35, two hours 40. And I now get to the point where I don't think twice about going out for a 24, 26 mile run. It's just 
part of the training. I think respect the distance is a very nice yeah. little phrase for anyone who's yeah. about to embark You've definitely upon. got to respect it, but don't be scared of it. And enjoy it, which is something that you so clearly yeah. did in That's London when you thrilled thing. us all. It's the biggest thing about any sport. You've got to enjoy it. It's the same as what I said about kind of, I'll know when I want to retire because that'll be the day that I'm no longer enjoying it and everything's a chore. If you find things a chore, you're not going to get out, especially in the winter, training for London, cold, dark mornings, wet, snow on the ground. You know, but if you enjoy going out for a run, it is more likely that you're going to get out of bed and get your shoes on. As much as you enjoy your running, I've enjoyed this chat. Ali, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you ever so much for your time. No problem. It's been good talking to you. Fascinating insights. And in, I didn't think it was possible for me to like Paula Radcliffe any more than I did when I picked up the phone today. <laughs> but somehow... Let's you... not tell her that. She'll get big-headed. <laughs> <laughs> I think she certainly deserves it. But no, thank you for your time. It's much appreciated. Thank you for having us on. Thank you for listening to The Backstroke Boys. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. You can tweet us at Backstroke B, at Matt Woody Wood and at Claire underscore G Thomas. Thanks very much. <laughs>